Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. สวัสดีครับ Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program, and we are in our second class of a three-part series where we're sharing the Eightfold Path in three individual classes so that we can penetrate deep down into the Eightfold Path, and you can understand what the Path to Enlightenment is in these three classes. Today, we're going to be discussing the moral conduct section of the Eightfold Path. This is right speech, right action, and right livelihood. We're going to be using the words of the Buddha so that you can see what he did teach and what he didn't teach. This way, you'll be fully informed on how to develop your life practice around all aspects of the Eightfold Path, including today's topic, which is moral conduct. So I'd like to welcome all of you, whether you've been joining regularly or you've been joining now for the first time, I'd like to welcome all of you and invite you to learn and ask any and all questions that you like as we go forward in our class. As I'm teaching, I'll be pausing at different times and opening up to any questions that you have. You can ask those questions by putting them into Facebook, YouTube, or in Zoom in the comment sections, and I'll be able to see those questions. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So I'm going to use some visual aids here to help us be able to discuss this topic, starting with this visual aid of the Eightfold Path, where you can see the Eightfold Path in its entirety. Because last week we discussed right view and right intention. This makes up the wisdom section of the Eightfold Path. This is where you learn about the three universal truths and the four noble truths, understanding that it's craving, desire, attachment that is causing the discontent feelings. All the sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, any kind of displeasure or uncomfortableness in the mind, it's all caused by craving, desire, attachment, that mental longing and strong eagerness, the mind chasing after the objects of its affection. In effect, you learn and you can independently verify that the mind itself is causing its own discontent feelings. Because in the unenlightened state, we oftentimes blame other people and think that other people are causing the discontent feelings. But that's not actually the truth. This is just a belief that the mind is holding on to. And when it gains the wisdom of right view, it can establish right view and see the truth for yourself that the mind is causing its own discontent feelings. And we did that through 
exploring the Four Noble Truths, where the Buddha then finally says in the Fourth Noble Truth that it is the Eightfold Path that leads to the complete elimination of discontent feelings. And that's how you would get to the enlightened mental state, where the mind's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, no longer experiencing any discontent feelings whatsoever, is you need to learn and practice the Eightfold Path, dialing in these steps closer and closer. And we explored right intention, where there's three aspects of right intention, where you learn about the intention of renunciation, the intention of non-ill will, and the intention of harmlessness. The intention of renunciation is maintaining an open mind, being willing to let go of false beliefs and misperceptions and misunderstandings, but replacing that with wisdom by you doing the work on the path to enlightenment to learn, to independently verify through your reflection, and then to practice the teachings uprooting the pollutions that are causing the mind to experience discontentedness. And then that intention of non-ill will is the same as intention of goodwill or loving kindness, having a genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. And then the intention of harmlessness is not being interested in causing harm to any beings and practicing this harmlessness. Well, the reason why the Buddha sets up the Eightfold Path in this way is because these are foundational teachings that you need in order to then move into understanding the moral conduct. If you didn't understand that you were causing your own discontent feelings, and establish the intention of renunciation, non-ill will, and harmlessness, it would be very challenging to understand and start to practice the other factors of the Eightfold Path, which are right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Everything that the Buddha taught in one way or another is coming back to the natural laws of existence. There's a primary law that is in the natural laws of existence called the natural law of gamma or cause and effect, or action and result. Some people refer to it as karma. That is the Sanskrit way of referring to this word, and that's a certain language, but the original teachings of the Buddha are in the Pali language, so people who study the original teachings of the Buddha will usually use this word gamma. When I teach, I use all English words. There's only two words that I really need to still use that are Pali because they don't translate over to one English word. And this is one of those, the word gamma. So I need to help you understand just a little bit of the natural law of gamma as we move into talking about the moral conduct because what the Buddha is teaching you in the moral conduct section of the Eightfold Path is coming back to the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect, or action and result, essentially the results of your decisions. You can think of the natural law of gamma as a sequencing of events of this cause and effect or cause and effect. Some people often mistakenly think the natural law of gamma is all about punishments and rewards or this you know, black cloud following you around or maybe there's a being or an entity that's deciding who gets punished and who gets rewarded. This is not what the natural law of gamma is whatsoever. It's a natural law that is always functioning whether you're aware of it or not. And there's this sequencing of events or this cause and effect or action and result. It's your life, your decisions, and your results. You experience the results of your decisions. So when you lack wisdom of this natural law, you'll tend to make unwise decisions because of your unknowing of true reality, that you lack the wisdom of this natural law. And when you make unwise decisions, you'll experience unwholesome results. 
But when you cultivate wisdom around this natural law and you gain wisdom of it, then you can make wise decisions that lead to wholesome results. So what the Buddha is doing in the moral conduct section is he's helping you to see this natural law of gamma as cause and effect or action and result. And you can learn it, you can reflect on it to independently verify it, to see the truth, and then you can practice it and see that it's actually working. Sometimes when people are learning things like moral conduct, they kind of look at them as rules or commandments or anything like this. You shouldn't think about it like that when you are learning the teachings of the Buddha because he never teaches in terms of rules or commandments. He's never guilting, shaming, or fearing you into learning anything particular. Instead, he's helping you to understand how he attained this peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy. His mind was already peaceful and joyful. He didn't want anything from the world. He didn't want the world to be any particular way. Instead, he could see how the world functions through this natural law. And when you don't understand how this natural law is functioning, the mind will struggle and have difficulties in the world because you'll tend to encounter a certain problem or challenge and because of the lack of wisdom you'll really struggle and have difficulties and as you start making decisions you'll tend to make unwise decisions that lead to unwholesome results but when you cultivate wisdom of this natural law not believing in this natural law but learning independently verifying and practicing so you can see the truth and cultivate this wisdom then you can awaken to the wisdom of this natural law and then make wise decisions that lead to wholesome results when we say awaken to enlightenment, that's essentially what we mean is that you're awakening to this natural law of gamma. Because when you awaken, then you have wisdom, you have knowledge, you understand what is going on in the world around you based on this natural law. A very simple way to think about it is if you're polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to people, people will tend to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to you. But when we're impolite, unkind, unfriendly, and disrespectful, that's the way people tend to treat us as well. So when you awaken to a natural law, you're essentially gaining wisdom. And you've done exactly the same thing as it relates to other natural laws in your life as well. At one time, as we were born and we were very young in life, we didn't understand the natural law of gravity. We really struggled and had difficulties with this natural law because we lacked wisdom of it. We made unwise decisions that produced unwholesome results. We fell down, we hit our knee, we hit our elbow, we hit our head, we broke our toys, we fell off of bicycles. We had all these difficulties because we didn't understand the natural law of gravity. We lacked wisdom. But slowly but surely over a period of time, we awoke to the wisdom of the natural law of gravity. We could see the truth for ourselves, And through trial and error and a bunch of missteps, we figured this out. And now we're at the point where we understand to tie our shoes, to look at the surface of the street or sidewalk as we walk. We don't bounce around and jump around as much as we did as a kid. We can now ride a bicycle or ride a motorcycle and all these different things. And this has helped us to be able to now make wiser decisions that lead to wholesome results because we awoke to the wisdom of the natural law of gravity. So the same thing that happened when we were a child, when we struggled and we cried and we were upset because we didn't understand the world around us, the same thing is happening with the natural law of gamma, that when you're struggling and having difficulties, you just lack wisdom of this natural law. And when you gain wisdom of this natural law, you can then make wiser decisions that lead to wholesome results. So that's what we're going to be discussing today 
is the step of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. But be sure that you understand that what the Buddha is sharing with you is a way to improve your moral conduct, becoming a better and better person, so that as you're making decisions about how you interact in the world, you're not causing harm to others, so that this harm doesn't come back to you. Because as long as you're causing harm through your moral conduct, it would be very challenging to ever get to a peaceful and joyful mind or a peaceful and joyful life. You could meditate for 23 hours a day, but if you went outside for one hour a day and started to be harsh and aggressive and bitter with people, that's all going to come back to you. You're not going to have a peaceful and joyful mind and a peaceful and joyful life. So the Buddha is going to provide you in the Eightfold Path the natural law of gamma that you can learn it, you can independently verify it through your reflections based on your past experiences that you've had in life, and then you can start practicing this moral conduct in your life now, and this is where you'll see your personal professional relationships will blossom because you're no longer causing harm through your intention, speech, and actions. Because in daily life, we tend to think that we have all the best intentions, and we do certain things in the world, and we make certain decisions about our speech and about our actions, and we feel we have the very best intentions. But when we put that out into the world, oftentimes we're surprised by what comes back to us in the unenlightened state because we thought we had all the best intentions in the world, and we, we were speaking in ways that we thought was wonderful. But that's because we lack the wisdom of these natural laws. The natural law of gamma is there functioning, and if you lack wisdom of it, you could think that you have the very best intentions, but when you put it out into the world, it might not be received in the way that you intended because you're not practicing closely to the natural law of gamma. So today is the process of starting to get to know what this natural law of gamma is through the Eightfold Path. And then at various times in this program, we're going to be revisiting this and we're going to be talking about the natural law of gamma itself when we get to chapter nine. But this is a good kind of introduction to it so that you can see its cause and effect or action and result, a sequencing of events that based on what you decide in life is going to determine the results that you experience. And what you decide in life is based on the wisdom that you have. So let's study here right speech, which is the Buddha's words on right speech from the Eightfold Path. Here what he says is, in what monks is right speech? Refraining from lying, refraining from slander, refraining from harsh speech, refraining from frivolous speech. This is called right speech. So here, the Buddha is giving you four aspects of speech to be able to purify, to be able to ensure that you understand this natural law of gamma as it relates to speech. But you don't just believe this. You don't take it as rules or commandments or anything like that. You understand that he's trying to help you see how to not cause harm through your speech. And during the lifetime of the Buddha, it was speech. That's all they had was speech. Nowadays, we have verbal speech, we have text messaging, we have Facebook posts or social media posts, we have emails. So you might consider this to be right communication because you'd like all your communication to be such that you're not causing harm. So now let's take each one of these. Now that you've learned what these are, and now let's 
compare and contrast them to our own experiences in life and see if the Buddha is really teaching something that would be beneficial for our life. That if we refrain from lying, what would we experience? So what we would like to do is look at times when we've lied because every single one of us have lied at some point in our life. We've all done that. So we have experience of what happens when we lie. So when we lie, people will typically discover our lies and then they will find out that we're not very dependable, that we're not trustworthy. And then our personal professional relationships will struggle. And if you've ever done a lot of lying, you have to lie to one person about one thing. And then when you're talking to another person, your mind has to almost be obsessively trying to remember what you lied to that person about so that you can now tell exactly the same lie to the second person. So your mind can be overactive while you're trying to figure out your own lies. So how could you get to a peaceful and joyful mind through lying because people are gonna find you untrustworthy and undependable, and now your personal professional relationships will struggle and you'll miss opportunities to have lasting and harmonious relationships while your mind is not very peaceful. Then the Buddha describes slander here. He shares with us that we shouldn't slander, and this is like gossip. Essentially what you're doing when you're slandering or gossiping is you're damaging someone's reputation. Whether what you're saying is true or false, if you're damaging someone's reputation, that's causing harm to them. And now they're gonna be interested in causing harm to you. What you'll find is they'll either gossip and slander you, or some people might even try to injure you physically. People have actually been murdered over slander. So if you refrain from slander, you're protecting your mind because you're making wise decisions and you're protecting the way you experience life and the way you interact in life. Then the Buddha talks about refraining from harsh speech. This is our tone, our tempo, and our word choice and how we choose to speak in the world. When we're harsh and aggressive or bitter and hostile with people, people aren't gonna be interested in spending time with us. This is how broken relationships come about. We've all spoken with harsh speech at one time in our life. So you can look back over the course of your life through your own direct experience and see that yes, the Buddha is indeed teaching the truth here that when you speak harshly, it causes difficulties in your life. And by purifying your speech and choosing to no longer speak harshly, you can experience improved results in your life. But of course, that's gonna be challenging when you have craving, desire, attachment in your mind. When you have longing and yearning, you're gonna have a real difficult time speaking gentle and without harshness. And that's why the mental discipline section that we're gonna be discussing next week is gonna help you see how to train your mind so that you can more and more learn and train to not speak with harsh speech. Then there's refraining from frivolous speech. What this is, is like idle chatter or unpurposeful, unbeneficial speech. This is where you might have a craving in your mind and you're just yada, 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 yada. It's more like broadcasting rather than a conversation. It's not a, you know, back and forth conversation where you're leaving space for somebody to also have a conversation to speak with you. You might have frivolous speech. And if you have frivolous speech, you're going to need to clean this up because you're going to find that you're not very influential or helpful in your community or in your workplace because people will just tune you out because you're not having a true conversation. It's just broadcasting to people. So these are four aspects of right speech that you would need to improve in order to 
move the mind closer and closer to this enlightened mental state. And by doing so, your mind can be more calm and more peaceful, and you'll see that your relationships will really improve. If you've done these things in the past, okay, that's done and in the past, you lacked wisdom of that. And now you can see the results of what you experienced based on those. So part of what we do is we make mistakes in life, and this gives us the direct experience to be able to see something like this is the actual truth. But understand that you're not going to be able to just snap your fingers and go outside and start practicing this immediately. In some cases, you will be. In certain relationships, you surely will be. But there are certain relationships that you'll have challenges to practice this. And that's why the mental discipline section is there in order to help you to train your mind so that then slowly but surely you can gradually train your mind, gradually practicing these teachings and experience this gradual progress in your life. None of these teachings can be learned in a class and then you can immediately implement them. You're going to make mistakes and missteps along the way, but gradually, slowly but surely, you can build up your practice where you're choosing to speak in wholesome ways and wise ways. So this is the first layer of detail that the Buddha teaches about right speech in the Eightfold Path. But remember what I shared previously, that the Eightfold Path is a core central teaching that other teachings plug into. And the way the, that the Buddha teaches is that he teaches in layers. He kind of gives you one layer of things to start working on and improving. And then he gives you another layer and helps you to understand the tools and techniques to work with that layer. And then sometimes it goes even deeper in helping you see some other aspects of various parts of your life practice that you can develop. So what I would suggest an individual to do is start with this first layer. If you're lying or slandering and gossip or using harsh speech or frivolous speech, work on eliminating that from your practice over a period of time. And as I mentioned, the meditation and the mental discipline and the things that you're going to learn there are surely going to help you to be able to do that. But then as you're starting to get your arms around that and you're starting to see the improvement and you start noticing that it's more and more easy for you to be able to practice that, then you'd like to go deeper. The Buddha has other teachings that are more deep around speech. And this is one of them that I'm sharing here underneath of the line. It's called Five Factors of Well-Spoken Speech. This is where he's sharing with you how to really hone in on your speech and speak in a way that doesn't cause harm to others. I'm going to go through each of these with you here in class, but remember you have the book. Volume 1, Chapter 5 is where this is shared, and I go into a lot of detail around speech because there's a lot of harm that we can cause with our speech and a lot of things that we're experiencing in terms of people talking to us, harsh or aggressive, if you have that in your life is because you might be putting out a certain amount of wrong speech, so to speak, or wrong communication, and therefore it's coming back to you in your various relationships. So I definitely recommend reading, if you haven't already downloaded the book from our website, buddhadailywisdom.com, you can get it for free there. You can take it and go print it if you like, or you can order a printed version on Amazon. They're available there for you. So speaking at the proper time, there's three aspects of this. The first one is ensuring that you're not interrupting people because you know that you don't like it when people interrupt you. So if you interrupted others, this would create difficulties in your relationship. So you'd like to be sure that you're not interrupting others. 
The second aspect is being sure that it's the proper time based on your mind. Because if your mind's angry or frustrated or agitated or any of those discontent feelings, it's not the proper time to speak because the only thing that's going to come out from your mouth is that anger, the frustration, the agitation. It's unwise to speak when your mind is in that condition. So it's best to step away from a conversation, regain your composure, whether that's a few hours or a few days, and then you can always have a conversation later when the mind's better prepared. And then the third aspect is keeping in mind about how another person's mind might be functioning and what the condition of their mind is at any given time. So if somebody else is angry or frustrated or agitated, that's the wrong time to talk because whatever you say isn't going to get through. So it's best that both people's minds are in a place that you can have a healthy conversation and then there can be understanding and mutual understanding between each other. You might even start to notice that certain topics that you're interested in talking about with another person, they might be very impactful and you might need to check with the other person to see if it's okay to be talking about this at that particular time. Say you get a notice in the mail that you haven't paid your rent and in three more days you're going to get kicked out of your house if you don't pay your rent. Well, if your partner or your roommate has just come home from work and you jump on them right away and start you know, being really upset about this particular notice, that's the wrong time to talk. They just walked in the door. It would be wise to let them come in, take off their shoes, put down their bag, maybe get some water, something to eat. And after a little bit of time, you might even ask them, you know, how was your day at work today? Uh, or how was your day? And they're like, oh, it was great. And you're like, oh, okay, well, I have something important to talk about. Is this a good time? And then if they're say yes, then that would be an ideal time for you to maybe have the conversation. Or if they've had a really bad day and they say, no, this isn't a good time to have a conversation, you might decide to not have that conversation. So you can talk this through in your own personality, your own character, and find out and ensure that it's a good time for the other person to talk. And this will ensure that you have really wholesome and helpful conversations using this wise teaching that the Buddha is sharing about speaking at the proper time. Then when you're speaking the truth, which we already covered as part of the core part of right speech, this is going to help you to be dependable and trustworthy. People are going to think of you as someone to be relied on. So you're always interested in telling the truth. The Buddha understood this so well with the natural law of gamma that he always told the truth from the time that he got enlightened onward, so much so that even when he told jokes, he didn't tell a lie. If you can imagine this person telling the truth and teaching the truth in his classes and the way that he was sharing the truth about the natural law of gamma, if on the side he was telling jokes that were lies, people wouldn't know whether to trust what he was saying when he was teaching was true or not. So even when he was in private conversations, if he told jokes, he would tell the truth. And you can see this in his own words that he talks about this. You might not associate a person that is a Buddha as telling jokes, but a Buddha tells jokes. They have a personality, they have a character, they have charisma. These pictures and different images we see of the Buddha, you know, 
pretty much always in meditation, make him look very serious and very rigid. But that's not the case. Who would be interested from learning from that person who's always like super serious and super serious? Nobody, right? So a Buddha tells jokes. They have a personality, a character, just like everyone else. But when the Buddha told jokes, he always in short, he told the truth. And this is a lot more challenging for the mind to be able to tell jokes that are truthful and also to tell jokes that aren't degrading or disparaging to other people or to yourself. Oftentimes people are telling jokes in ways that are degrading and disparaging to others. And you'll find that you'll have much more success in your life if you're speaking the truth, not only in daily life, but when you're telling jokes and when you're choosing to talk and tell jokes that you're not being degrading and disparaging to others. This third factor is speaking gently. What this is, is your tone, your tempo, and your word choice. You're going to need to pay attention to that as you're speaking with people, because this is going to really help you in your relationships to ensure that you're not causing harm. Because if you were to speak harsh and aggressive, hostile and bitter, you've seen what that does. You experience broken relationships and difficulties in your relationships, certain resentment, certain roughness in your relationships. But if you start to learn how to speak gentle with your tone, your tempo, and your word choice, you're going to find different results. If you keep doing the same thing over and over, you're going to keep getting the same results. But if you start changing and adjusting the way that you practice in the world and you start speaking gently through your tone, tempo, and word choice, you're going to see different results. And you know, in life, it's really helpful to show politeness and respect in all aspects of the way we interact with people, particularly in speech. At one time in the English language, we used to speak in ways that were very polite and very kind. And people knew that we were speaking polite and kind. Here in Thailand, the Thai language has various words and various things that we use in our language in Thailand that people know that you're speaking polite and kind because it takes a little bit extra effort to say those words and put those into your sentences so that people know that you're speaking polite and kind. You can look at the English language and there's words like this, like please and thank you, words like ma'am and sir and things like this. You can decide to start using some of that if you like, and you'll see completely different results when you go into a store to purchase gasoline or to purchase a drink or purchase food or with your food server. If you start referring to people in very polite, warm and friendly ways, you're going to see a completely different response in your life. Initially, it might be challenging for you to start doing these things because you haven't maybe done these things. But the more you do them, it becomes easy. It's actually really hard to walk around with anger and disgruntledness and agitation and being rude and impolite to people. It's actually really difficult. It weighs on the mind and it weighs on the body. Well, for you to purify your speech and bring it up to what I'm describing here, it's going to be a certain challenge for you. But as you get up and running with it, it actually is a lot easier to be kind and loving and respectful to people. You'll find that your mind can be more light and you'll sleep better at nighttime even because you know you've been completely warm and gentle and friendly with the people around you. And that's more and more of what will be coming back to you. Then they're speaking beneficially. What this is, is about that frivolous speech or that idle chatter, ensuring that you have purposeful speech. 
speaking beneficial isn't necessarily about the topic that you're discussing. It's about ensuring that when you're speaking, there's a purpose behind your speech. That if you're sitting down with a brand new person you just met and you're asking them certain questions about their age or where they live or their life or things like that, that's purposeful. It's beneficial. You're getting to know somebody. But if you were just broadcasting and yada, 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 this is not purposeful and beneficial. So you'd like to be sure that you're speaking in beneficial ways. And then lastly, speaking with a mind of loving kindness. Loving kindness is a genuine interest in seeing all beings be well, where you have this interest of practicing goodwill without judging others. We're going to be talking about this when we get to chapter 14, which is titled healthy mental states, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. This is where you're going to learn how to cultivate these healthy mental states, and you're going to be able to see the things that it transforms in the mind. And I'm even going to be teaching you loving kindness meditation to be able to cultivate this in the mind so then it becomes easier to speak with loving kindness. Loving kindness is having that warmth and that interest in seeing all beings be well, practicing goodwill. So these five factors of well-spoken speech, speaking at the right time, what you say is true, speaking gently, beneficially, and with a mind of loving kindness is going to help you to practice in a way that's not causing harm to others. Now that you've learned this, you can start reflecting on this and start looking to see if it's true or not. You can look back over the course of your life through your own direct experience and see in situations where you weren't practicing even one of these five factors. You might have been practicing all the other four without realizing it. But if you miss just one of these five factors in a certain conversation, there's a good chance that that conversation didn't go very well and it might have ended in an unwholesome way or if the other person wasn't speaking in that way. So you can see the truth for yourself that the Buddha is indeed sharing with you the natural law of gamma that's gonna help you to be able to improve the way that you interact in the world. You can even look back at conversations that went really well and that there was a very wholesome outcome. And even though you didn't know these five factors at that time, that the conversation went really well because you happened to be practicing them without even realizing it. And the other person happened to be practicing them too without realizing it. So if you've done any kind of interaction with people and you can look back over the course of your life through your direct experience and do that compare and contrast, you can see that what the Buddha is sharing is the truth through your reflection. But then to really drive it home so that you can see that it's the truth, you start practicing these. And as you start practicing them, that's where you see your personal professional relationships really improve. It's not going to be the first day or the first week or the first month, but slowly but surely, you'll see improvement in your life as you start to clean up the way you interact in the world. And as you speak in this way, you're going to start establishing something that we refer to here in Thailand as Barami. This is a Thai word that we use here in Thailand. It's pronounced Barami. What Barami means is it means the one who people listen to. In Thai society and Thai culture, there are certain people who have Barami, the one who people listen to. In a lot of villages, there can be elders that 
people know that these people have had a very good life. Maybe they've got along with a lot of people very well. Maybe they've been successful in business or something like that. And these people have barami because they're very wise about how they interact with people. And the villagers will tend to go to this person or this couple or these individuals and seek advice and seek guidance because they have barami. They're the one who people listen to. They're wise about things. Well, the way that you establish barami is you practice the five factors of well-spoken speech because the more you interact with people in ways that doesn't cause harm, then more and more people are interested to spend time around you because they see that you're not causing harm through your speech. And of course, this comes from your right intention and your right view because if you have wrong view and you thought that other people are causing you to be angry, you might feel justified in your harsh speech. You might feel justified in that anger. But if you establish right view and you understand that your mind is causing its own discontent feelings and you establish right intention, where you have the intention to let go of this harshness, where you have the intention of non-ill will and cultivating goodwill, and you have the intention of harmlessness, now your speech can emanate from that right view and that right intention where you're now interested in practicing in a way that you can establish barami and you can become the one who people listen to more and more and throughout the community that you circulate in and people will look to you as being very wise because you're not causing harm to others through your speech these are some teachings that i share in the book there's a lot more that i share there than i could fit into a particular slide but i include this into our discussion around right speech because if all else fails and you're out there and you can't remember 100 percent of what the individual factors of the five factors of well-spoken speech are if you can at least remember to be polite kind friendly and respectful through having wholesome speech in all forms of communication, this can be really helpful for you. But more and more, you'll need to dial in this five factors of well-spoken speech. One of the things that I did when I was working on this really closely is I would review the five factors of well-spoken speech in short form in the morning before I would go outside. You might even decide to take a photo of this and put it on your phone so that you know, when you're at the bus stop or, you know, you're uh, waiting in the DMV or something like this, or you're somewhere at a doctor's office, you can be reviewing the five factors of well-spoken speech, like before you go into an important meeting or something like this. And now throughout the morning, you practice as best you can what you've actually reviewed. And then maybe in the afternoon or evening, you also review it again to prepare you for things that are going on in the evening. And if you do this over a period of weeks, you'll find that it, this becomes more and more straightforward because you're refreshing the mind each day about what the five factors of well-spoken speech are. And that's why we have this space between our classes where you can learn something in class and then apply it in daily life and start seeing the results of it. So this is what I'd like to share so far on right speech, and I'd like to open up to any questions that you guys might have related to right speech before we move on to talking about right action. Remember, you can put your questions into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and I'll be able to see your questions in the comment section. Or in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here from any students. Oh, here we go. Here's one, Steve. I can see that I need to do a lot of work on this. Thanks, teacher. Oh, yes, you're welcome, Steve. Uh, yeah, this is an area that we tend to 
really cause a lot of harm and, and you know when there's craving desire attachment in there when there's anger in there it's really challenging for the mind to practice in this way so that's why you're going to get more next week on the mental discipline so that you can start training your mind and then it'll be easier for you to implement something like right speech and you'll see significant results in your life as you start improving this because we've made certain un unwise decisions in the past and we're experiencing unwholesome results now if the mind is unenlightened you might have family members or brothers or sisters or co-workers that speak harsh to you and that's because that's become the norm in your relationships but as you start changing the way you practice then slowly but surely over time you might see that other people are choosing to adjust the way they do things as well and this is really helpful as it relates to children for any of you guys that have children that if you're bitter and harsh and hostile toward children as you put that out your children are going to end up speaking that way with you over a period of time so by you modifying your conduct and the way that you interact in the world then your children will have a role model and they'll start to practice in a similar way. But if you've been making unwise decisions in the past, you're going to need to clean up your practice first so that then other people around you can take notice of that and then they might start improving their conduct as well. And this will help you to cultivate more healthy relationships. Looks like Miriam has a question here too. What to do when the other person does not use right speech and we may become defensive or want to stop the conversation and leave. So we can't control what other people choose to do. Other people are gonna use wrong speech with us sometimes. But by the time you train your mind, your mind can be fully protected. It doesn't matter what anybody says, you won't become defensive, you won't become aggressive, you won't become hostile. But while your mind's in transition, you're gonna find it very difficult. What we tend to do in the unenlightened state is we react in situations and we oftentimes are reacting through that unwise decision making that unknowing of true reality and that's why it produces unwholesome results but what you're trying to get to more and more is that you respond in a given situation and sometimes your response can be to ignore it to walk away and to leave and if the other person gets angry because you're walking away from a conversation that should give you even more justification or more evidence to see that it would be very unwise for you to talk to this person because nothing's going to get through when they're so angry and hostile and bitter it's the wrong time to speak and then also remember if you're walking away from a conversation and somebody gets angry they're causing their own anger you didn't cause that anger no matter what they believe in their mind you need to be able to see the truth so just like your mind causes its own anger through things like craving desire attachment that mental longing strong eagerness if other people are getting angry they're causing their own discontentedness too and oftentimes it's best to just walk away because anytime someone's bitter and harsh and hostile and aggressive it's just the wrong time to talk and there's nothing productive that's going to come from that so i see francis you have your hand up what's your question sir my question is about the uh, talking to my mom. She's the tend to worry a lot about herself. Sometimes I don't tell her the whole story because you know, tell the whole story where I'm going, what I'm doing. She tend to worry. I'm not back yet. You will ask her to call me. Where am I now? So I have this um, thing about you know. I know that I'm not saying the whole truth, but I'm not lying with the with the intention of causing anything. So uh, how do you, how, how, what would you say you know, to, in this case? 
Sure. When you have certain situations that you're involved in and you're not choosing in this example to not share with mom everything about what you're doing and where you're going, this isn't lying. This is just making potentially a wise choice because as you say, if you share everything with her, she's going to worry. She's going to call you. She's going to want to know something. So you're not required to share everything about what's going on in your life. You can just leave and say, all right, mom, see you later. Goodbye. Have a lovely day. You know, there's no need for you to go into a lot of detail. And if you found that it's unwise to do so, then that's a good reason to not do so and not to share that detail. So this isn't lying. This is just choosing to share selectively based on a as need to know basis. You don't need to tell everybody everything about what's going on in your life. So that's fine if that's something that you would like to do because you can't cause harm by not telling something in this particular example. If you were called to a court of law, for example, and you were under oath and you held back information and you didn't tell everything that you know in a given situation, this can cause harm because you can potentially perjure yourself and you can be looked at in a very unwise way in terms of people thinking of you as being unwholesome. So when it comes to mom, you know, you don't need to tell her everything, but if you are under oath or you're obligated to tell everything you know, like maybe in a business setting or in a court of law, in those situations, you'd like to tell what you know because people are going to be injured if you don't tell everything you know. But in this case, nobody's going to be injured based on what you're sharing. And that's what you would like to do whenever you're trying to look at your moral conduct, whether it's speech or actions or anything else always look at is this a harmful or is it unharmful right is it harmful or is it harmless so by not telling mom have you caused any harm and based on what i'm hearing the answer is no and you've actually practiced harmlessness because there's less harm by not sharing the detail with her that if you share detail with her her mind would become obsessive it sounds like so you're always looking at you know have you caused harm or not i was with some students this week during a retreat and we went to a store in order to buy a bunch of supplies for an orphanage that we were going to go visit and the students were also interested in buying some food for themselves and they had a big bag of apples and they said oh i'm not sure if i'm supposed to be buying this or not because we're here to buy food for the orphanage and i just smiled and i reminded them i said of course you can buy apples there's no rules like that in terms of the teachings of the buddha and what you would always like to look at is are you causing harm or not so i asked them i said you buying apples are you causing harm to anyone and they said no and i said okay there you go so you can use this as your guidance francis when it comes to your speech is are you causing harm through not telling mom where you're going and the answer is no you're not so there you can see that it's not going to produce any unwholesome results for you okay i got it now thank you so much you're very welcome so i have a, a thank you here from miriam i'm just going to read because i might have something to share here she says thank you for your guidance it's hard to leave or ignore when it's a family member. Yes, this is because of the craving desire attachment. The mind is attached in this relationship. The mind's holding on. So when you're practicing breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity, learning how to let go and train the mind to let go, then you'll be able to walk away. Right now, it's probably very difficult. It's very challenging. There's a class that I taught, which is how to eliminate attachment to those who are closest to us, because 
your relationships with your parents, with your children, with your siblings, with your life partner, those attachments are very deep and oftentimes very hard to let go of. And I taught a special class that was recorded for the YouTube channel in our podcast where you can learn about how to eliminate attachment to those that are closest to you because that's what you're going to need to do to make it easier and easier to let go in those conversations and walk away. But keep in mind that staying in the conversation and continuing to argue or be bitter and harsh or even being argumentative to begin with, this is unwise. It's going to damage your relationship. There were times when my child where I had a lot of difficulties with my mom and as I was growing up I found it very challenging to have a relationship with her and there were times when I was working on my mind that she would become bitter and harsh or judgmental with me and I would just be on the phone and I would say mom you know I really love you a lot and our relationship means a lot to me and rather than being bitter and harsh and hostile the way I used to be in the past I'm going to just get off the phone now because I value our relationship more than being bitter and harsh and aggressive with you. And perhaps when we get off the phone, you can just think about what it is that you just said, and then we can just get back together another time. You know, you take care, mom. I love you, right? And I would get off the phone in that way, and that can be a nice exit. And then just no matter what they say, just get off the phone or or walk away from the conversation. So you can have those kinds of things that you are thinking about and just let it emanate from a very loving, kind, and warm place. There's another question here in Zoom from Cornelia. I am a foreigner and English is my second language. My husband tells me that I speak harsh, although that is not my intention. I just translate everything from my language to English. When I try to speak like the people around, he tells me I am insincere because I sugarcoat everything. What is the difference? So your husband most likely has a certain expectation of the way he wants you to speak. And that's coming through his own mind, which is, I'm assuming he's unenlightened, right? Because there's certain pollutions in his mind that he's looking out at the world and it's like looking out at the world through a dirty window. And he's wanting you to speak in a certain way. And it may not meet to his expectations, but that's his expectations. But nonetheless, we should still heave the advice of people around us and kind of look about how we're talking. But sometimes keep in mind that when people are sharing things with you about how they want you to talk, it's based on their cravings, desires, attachments. It's not based on the five factors of well-spoken speech, for example. So I would need to be able to kind of hear some of the things that you say and some of the ways you say it and maybe even talk with your husband and see what he's seeing. And then I'd be able to be able to give you better feedback, Cornelia. But just based on this, I wouldn't be able to tell you because sugarcoating something isn't necessarily a a bad thing, but some people see it as a bad thing, right? So that's where I say that his mind probably has certain cravings and expectations of wanting you to speak a certain way. And if it's not meeting that, he might think you're speaking in unwise ways. But what you would like to do is get to the point where you're practicing based on the five factors of well-spoken speech, which cuts through all culture barriers, all language barriers. It just cuts through all of that and gets to a normalized way of you being able to interact in the world based on the natural law of gamma, of cause and effect. 
I've been to many different countries throughout my life. You know, I've been to America, I've been to Canada, I've been to Egypt, I've been to Thailand, I've been to Laos, I've been to different places like this using the five factors of well-spoken speech. And it doesn't matter what the culture is, these five factors of well-spoken speech work as you're speaking. And whether you're using a local language or whether you're using an international language like English. So bring your practice to that. But if you would like more details and more feedback on this, it'd be good to have a private discussion where you can schedule with me online. And if your husband would like to tune in for part of that and join us in Zoom, then perhaps I could listen to some of his feedback and what he's observing. And then I'd be able to provide you some better guidance on that. But in general, look at bringing your practice up to the five factors of well-spoken speech. And that's where you'll be able to then have a speech that isn't harmful to anyone, despite what other people might be sharing with you. Bruce has a question here in YouTube. A lot of times I pause and ask myself what my intentions are before speaking. Is this a good practice? Yes, this is exactly what the Buddha taught. He taught that before you take a bodily, verbal, or mental action, that you should think about and reflect whether this is going to cause harm to others or not. And then he says, while you're doing a certain bodily, verbal, or mental action, reflect on whether it's going to cause harm. And then the same thing after you're done with a certain action, reflect on whether it was causing harm to others or causing harm to yourself. So in each of these three situations, if you're reflecting before you do an action, while you're doing an action, and after you're doing an action of whether or not it's harmful or not, slowly but surely you'll be able to clean up your moral conduct, particularly around speech and bodily actions and other things, because you'll be able to sit there and observe it and analyze it and figure it out using the, something like the five factors of well-spoken speech to compare and contrast. As you're bringing your speech up to the five factors of well-spoken speech, you might be three quarters of the way through your sentence and it pops in your mind, oh my goodness, this was an unwise way to speak. Cut that off. Don't even finish your sentence. Even if it was at a three quarters part of your sentence, just cut it off. Apologize to the person, make amends, let them know that you were unwise and aim to do better. And then maybe next time you catch it halfway through or a quarter of the way through. Cut it off, apologize, you know, make amends and, and aim to do better. And then maybe next time it's on the tip of your tongue and you catch it there. And maybe next time it's just a thought and you catch it there. So more and more you cut it back. It's like a wild bush that's growing. You cut it back more and more and more and more until you eventually uproot it out of the mind. And now you're gonna be more easily practicing right speech in all situations. So what you're describing, Bruce, is very wise. The Buddha actually taught this. And if you implement this in these three aspects that I'm describing, which is reflect before, during, and after, this is where you'll really be able to purify your moral conduct, whether it's speech or actions or even the mental action as well. All right, it looks like we've handled all the questions of people that have asked questions. And Cornelia, I see your thank you there. You're uh, very welcome, pleased to help you. So let's move on to talking about right action. And just keep in mind that it would be helpful to go back and read the book if you haven't already read the book around right speech because there's a lot more details there that are gonna really help you. 
Here under right action, the Buddha is giving you three things that are very harmful that you could potentially do and that are going to produce harm to others. So therefore harm is going to come to you. So I'll read this to you and then we'll talk about what right action is in more detail and how to apply it to your daily life. He says here in the Eightfold Path, this core central teaching, in what monks is right action? Refraining from taking life, refraining from taking what is not given, refraining from sexual misconduct. This is called right action. So here he's giving you three decisions that you can make that cause significant harm. And when we study the five precepts, which is in chapter seven, you're going to get a lot more detail around these teachings. Right here, he's just pointing to the five precepts because it's the five precepts where he goes into detail about this, where instead of just saying, you know, refrain from taking life, he goes into a lot more detail about living compassionately for the welfare of all living beings, because this isn't black and white you know, there's a big gray area that you need to navigate. So we're going to be talking about that when we get to the five precepts. And the same thing with refraining from taking what is not given. This is about not stealing. There's more detail in the five precepts. And the same thing with refraining from sexual misconduct. You'll see in the five precepts, the Buddha describes sexual misconduct. And he talks about it in terms of having sex with minors, uh, going outside of a relationship that you're currently in, about luring somebody out of a existing relationship that they're in, about raping people and having sex without consent, essentially harmful sexual conduct. If you're harming through your sexual conduct, this is going to cause harm. People have been injured and murdered and had all kinds of difficulties based on sexual misconduct, even sexually transmitted diseases as a result. It's important to understand here, I'll give you a little preview that when the Buddha teaches sexual misconduct, which he goes into a lot of detail about, he doesn't talk about same gender relationships. Oftentimes there might be an individual who thinks that same gender relationships is harmful. Well, if a man and a woman are choosing to have an intimate relationship with each other, who are they harming? They're two loyal, loving, consenting adults. So that's a male and a female. Well, if two male or two females are having a loyal, loving, consenting relationship with each other, who are they harming? The answer is they're not harming anybody. And that's why the Buddha didn't teach it as part of his sexual misconduct. He was aware of individuals who preferred same gender relationships. He talks about individuals who don't identify with masculine qualities or feminine qualities in his teachings. And that's all he does is he just observes that it exists during his lifetime. He doesn't provide any teachings on it because he's sharing this natural law of gamma and it's cause and effect or action and result. It's about not causing harm to others. And if two loyal, loving, consenting adults are having an intimate relationship together, they're not causing harm to others. And this is what he understood 2,500 years ago. Just you know, 50 or even 20 or even 10 years ago. And even now, there's still people in the world that don't understand this. More and more people are starting to awaken to this understanding. But I just like to give you guys a preview here to understand that not every male is going to be interested in having sex with a female. This is the universal truth of impermanence, that if every single male was interested in having sex with a female, then that would be permanence. And we wouldn't understand the, the universal truth of impermanence. But last class, we studied the universal truth of impermanence and we understand constant change, that there's not this permanent stuff. 
going on in the world. So it's impossible for every male to be interested in having sex with a female, and it's impossible for every female to be interested in having sex with a male because of the universal truth of impermanence. So this helps you to understand why there's individuals who prefer same-gender relationships. And if you're that type of individual, you're not doing anything wrong. You're not causing harm to anyone. What's happening is in the world, people are craving permanence and wanting every male to have sex with a female or wanting every female to have sex with a male. So then their hate and their anger and their hostility arises because they're not getting their craving fulfilled. Whereas if their craving's fulfilled, they get pleasant feelings. And if it's not fulfilled, they get painful feelings. But they're causing that anger and that hatred themselves. An individual who's in a loving, loyal, consenting relationship isn't causing that anger. Notice here in this particular step that the Buddha is not saying, don't walk up to someone and punch them in the face. He's not giving you every single last thing that you could potentially do with your bodily actions that would cause harm. So here he's giving you three very impactful decisions that you could make and helping you to focus your attention on this so that you can clear up this out of your life. But he's not saying don't punch somebody in the face. But if you understand right action, that it's refraining from causing harm through your bodily actions, because if you cause harm, harm will come to you, then you understand walking up to somebody and punching them in the face, they're very likely to attack you back. They're very likely to pull a knife, maybe pull a gun. Maybe their friends or family will attack you. You'll get arrested. These are very unwise decisions to make. He doesn't say, you know, don't drag your suitcase down the aisle of a plane and run over people's feet and knock into their knees, right? He doesn't say that because planes didn't exist during his lifetime, right? So if, if you understand right action, you can see by dragging your suitcase through the aisle of a plane and running over people's feet and hitting into their knees, you're probably going to get some you know, really strong looks. You might get some aggression, hostility coming at you because of that. So you'd like to ensure that your bodily actions aren't causing harm to others. There's teachings from the Buddha about bodily actions and various parts of his teachings that you'll be able to see. And I've included a couple of those here where he's sharing with you in other teachings about not taking substances that cause heedlessness and refraining from gambling. And you can think of that as a action because when you're taking substances that cause heedlessness, which is unattentiveness, unalertness, unawareness of the mind, this is going against what you're trying to produce in the mind in order to get to enlightenment. In order to get to enlightenment and make wise decisions, you're going to need to have awareness of mind or mindfulness. So if we take substances that promote heedlessness in our mind, then this is walking exactly the opposite direction from enlightenment. So you will find when we talk about the five precepts in chapter seven that we're going to be discussing this particular one in detail and applying it to various substances that you may or may not be thinking about in relation to that. And gambling is the same way is that gambling is a bodily action that we could do that if we used our money and our resources to gamble in hopes of winning some amount of money, you can get really addicted to that and kind of do a downward spiral. And then when it's time to purchase basic necessities for life, you will find that you don't have those resources available to you. So you might think about choosing to eliminate any gambling that you have. And this way you'll be able to preserve your resources for you and your family to take care of the things that you need to take care of. 
So let me see if you guys have any questions on right action. Same thing, you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and I'll be able to see those and be able to answer any questions that you guys might have related to this particular topic. All right, I'm not seeing any questions coming in, so I'll go ahead and move to the next step in the Eightfold Path, which is right livelihood. We're gonna be discussing this one and helping you understand what this one is. First, let's talk about what is a livelihood. A livelihood is how you choose to sustain your life in the world. This could be your occupation or how you choose to make an income. It could also be like a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad. How you choose to function in the world and sustain your life and the contributions that you're making in your life through sustaining your life, you need to make some kind of income or you need to contribute something to the world and it's your livelihood that is describing what you actually do in life. Well, in the Eightfold Path, the Buddha gives a very basic description and essentially points you to another teaching where he has other teachings that describe what right livelihood is. So here in the Eightfold Path, he just says, and what monks is right livelihood? Here, monks, the noble disciple, having given up wrong livelihood, keeps himself by right livelihood. What a noble disciple is, is during the lifetime of the Buddha, there was a, a really strong caste system in place that you were born into an affluent and rich family, you were considered to be nobility. And then if you were born into a family that lacks resources, you were gonna be having a, a really harsh life and that's all that you would ever experience because you were born into this family that lacked resources. And they called the affluent families, they called them nobility. And they actually exposed their right shoulder as they walked through the community that these rich and affluent people would wear clothing that showed their right shoulder so that other people knew that they were from the noble class. Well, the Buddha was kind of flipping this upside down on its head and sharing with people that it doesn't matter where you're born and what family you're born into. It's about the wisdom that you cultivate in the mind and how you choose to conduct yourself in life. And he referred to everybody who was studying his teachings and that was cultivating wisdom and doing this inner work to improve how they function as a human being, he referred to them as a noble disciple. And that's why the ordained practitioners, even to this day, will expose their right shoulder because this is going back to the lifetime of the Buddha, where no matter what family you're born into, you can cultivate wisdom and choose to function in wiser and more wholesome ways in the world. So if someone's born into a low family where during that lifetime they considered those people to be low and poor, the Buddha said, no, you're nobility, you know, expose your right shoulder. And, and you know, now they're wearing robes and walking around with their shoulder exposed and now they're cultivating this wisdom. So whenever you see in the teachings of the Buddha where he's talking about a noble disciple, this is the reason why that all of his students, in his opinion, were noble because they were learning and practicing wisdom to improve their life and do that inner work on the mind to become a better and better person. So under this, I have some of his teachings on right livelihood, and I'm just gonna give you kind of an introduction to some of his teachings on right livelihood, and then I'll guide you to a place where if you're looking to change your livelihood, or if you're currently unemployed and you're looking to get a new livelihood, you can look and explore the full teachings of what the Buddha shares around right livelihood. Because there's two ways to kind of purify your livelihood and ensure you're not causing harm through the way that you sustain your life. If you're sustaining your life off of the harm of others, this is going to bring harm to you. So here in this first teaching, you can see what's called the trades not to be plied. These are five businesses that if you conducted work in any of these 
five businesses, it's going to cause harm to others. So therefore, harm is going to come to you. And you would like to get to a point where you understand what these are, and then you can practice in such a way that you're not causing harm so that then harm doesn't come to you. Here, the Buddha is talking about business and weapons, living beings, meat, substances that cause heedlessness, and in poisons. Because these five livelihoods are going to be such that you're sustaining your life off of harming others. And as I've done with all these teachings is you learn them, you reflect on them, and then you practice. So now that you've learned this one particular teaching, let's start reflecting on it to determine if it's actually true or not. Let's take something like business and substances that cause heedlessness. You can do all of them at any time that you like, kind of looking back and doing a reflection based on your direct experience. But let's just take this one, since this one tends to be an easy one for people to be able to see the truth about, is substances that cause heedlessness. If I were to stand on the street corner and I was to sell cocaine or heroin into a community, I'm causing harm to this community by selling substances that cause heedlessness. And now because of that, harm can come to me. I could get beat up. I could get robbed. I could get murdered. I could get addicted to the substance that I'm selling. The police could arrest me. This is because of the harm that I'm doing in the community. You can see very clearly it would cause harm in the community. Thus harm could come to you. But remember, this is the natural law of gamma. The natural law of gamma is a much higher law than the law of human beings. In the human world, we've created various laws. We've developed these laws, we implement these laws, we enforce these laws, and it's very challenging for us to do that in a perfect way. Our laws are imperfect because human beings are prone to errors. And because of that, when we implement laws, we make mistakes as we're implementing laws. So the human law is one thing, but the natural law of gamma is a much higher law that you would be interested to develop as your life practice. And that's what's going to actually help you get closer and closer to enlightenment. So as a human law, it's illegal to sell cocaine or heroin. And also based on the natural law of gamma, you can see that it would be unwise to do so. But the human law it's legal to work in a liquor store, for example, and sell whiskey and sell beer and things like this. But when you understand the natural law of gamma, you can see that it would be unwise to work in that kind of situation because these are places that typically people who are drunk or intoxicated are going to be coming into. And now you're going to have to deal with the drunk and intoxicated people coming into your work environment. But also in this environment, these places tend to also get robbed frequently and people get injured or beat up and robbed and murdered just by working in a liquor store. Well, by human law, you can work in a liquor store. There's no problem with you working in a liquor store. You won't go to jail for that. But if you understand the natural law of gamma, you can see that it's quite unwise to work in a liquor store. So you can take each one of these livelihoods that the Buddha is talking about and you can compare and contrast it based on things that you know about the world and you can see that he's indeed teaching the truth. Then there's another teaching that would be helpful for you to understand at this point in order to help you in your livelihood. The Buddha teaches about wrong livelihood involving scheming, flattery, hinting, belittling, and pursuing gain with gain. This is how you choose to conduct your livelihood while you're actually doing a certain livelihood. So for example, if I was a nurse or a doctor 
this is a, a right livelihood in terms of it's not one of those five businesses that would cause harm. But if I was scheming, if I was you know, stealing medicines from the hospital or something like this, this is going to cause me harm in my livelihood because once it's found out that I'm being corrupt and doing corrupt things, or say if I was a politician, that's also a right livelihood. But if I was doing corrupt things and scheming either as a nurse or a politician or a doctor or a police officer or something like this, it's going to cause me harm in my livelihood and I'm going to find it difficult to sustain my life and build a rewarding career. Same thing with flattery. What this is, is this is like insincere comments to your customers or your coworkers just to get people to buy things from you or to do things that you want them to do. If you were doing this at work, it would also put strain on your relationships and you'll find it challenging to be successful at work. Hinting is like not being clear and direct about any particular thing that you're working on. Let's just say I was on a project team and we're all working on various things and we come to a meeting to report to our boss where we're at with the project. And perhaps when I'm talking, I'll say, well, I did my work and here's how I you know, did that and I was really dedicated to doing this, but I'm not sure about Barbara. I haven't really seen her doing very much work lately. Right? You're kind of hinting around, you're kind of beating around the bush, you're kind of degrading and even belittling, which is this next one, kind of belittling your coworker. This would be unwise in a work environment. So if you're belittling your coworkers or even your competition, if you're in business and you're belittling other people who are providing the same products and services as you, this does not look good for you and you'll find that it's difficult to be successful in this situation. So you would like to eliminate those from your practice. What pursuing gain with gain is, this is where if you are in a certain livelihood and you really aren't having much enthusiasm or motivation to work in this particular livelihood, but you're just showing up for a paycheck and you're not really dedicated to the work, you're not really you know, feeling strongly about the, any particular aspect of working there, and it just kind of feels miserable going to work almost every day because all you're doing is you're out for the profits. If you have a certain livelihood like this, this is gonna essentially put you in a condition where you might be very bored or very lonely going to work, you might feel unmotivated and unenthused, and you'll find that it's very challenging to get to a peaceful and joyful mind and a peaceful and joyful life when you're just showing up for a paycheck and that's it. When you choose a livelihood, you should have enthusiasm, you should have motivation, so that when your feet hit the ground and it's time to go to work, that you're interested in going to work and that's something that you would like to do and you feel good about what it is that you're going off into the world to provide, either a product or a service to the world. This way you can always stay very motivated in your work. It almost feels like it's not even work at all, right? Because you're just so motivated to do what it is that you're doing that you could probably do it without even getting a paycheck. Knowing that you need money to sustain your life, but you might be so enthused and motivated about the work that you're doing that if you didn't get paid for it, it would almost be fine with you because you're just that motivated and enthused to do the work. If you can find a livelihood like that, then you will surely experience more and more peace and joy in your life because you enjoy what you're doing each day and you're very motivated to do it. There's other teachings that are more detailed about right livelihood that goes beyond what it is that I'm describing here. If you're looking to change jobs or you're unemployed and looking to get a job, you might choose to go to volume 12, chapter 14. 
This is part of the book series that I share. If you go to buddhadailywisdom.com and click on the link for free books, go to volume 12, chapter 14, and you'll be able to see the full teachings of the Buddha around right livelihood of how to get to a livelihood that you are motivated and enthused about. And you'll even see words from me in there that will help you as well. So this is right livelihood and something that you would like to purify because if eight hours, 12 hours a day, you're doing something that you despise, it's gonna be very challenging to get to a, to a point where your mind's peaceful and joyful, in your life is peaceful and joyful, in relationships around you are harmonious because you're gonna dread going to work each day. So let me provide a summary of what it is that we've been discussing and then I'll just open up to any questions about right livelihood or any other aspect of what we've been discussing on the moral conduct section. Right speech is ensuring that there's no harm through your verbal communication and all communication truly. Any verbal, text, chat, post, emails, it should all be harmless. If you went to a job interview, for example, and you did really well at a job interview and you spoke to your coworkers, your managers, your bosses in really wholesome ways, but on social media, you were very aggressive and hostile and they check that when you're applying for a job, you're probably not gonna get the job. So it would be very wise for you to purify all your speech, all your interaction, all your texts and posts and emails and everything because this is going to promote the most success in your life. And you'll see that your relationships will really blossom. Right action is about not causing harm through your bodily conduct. Your bodily action should be harmless. Not just the killing, stealing, and sexual misconduct, but all aspects of movements around the world. Of course, you're gonna bump into somebody, you're probably gonna step on someone's foot here and there as you move about the world, but when you do that, just be sure to apologize right away and let them know that you're sorry, that you make amends through apologizing. This is the way that you keep your gamma clean. You can clean up your gamma. As you have bodily actions and you might step onto someone's foot or you might bump into somebody, it's very wise to apologize because then you can keep your gamma clean because these things happen from time to time. This is impermanence. But if you were to say nothing when you stepped on someone's foot or bumped into them, this could create a situation that you would regret later. So if you make mistakes and you need to make amends through an apology or saying sorry, do that, and it's very wise to do that as soon as possible so that people understand with your sincerity that you're truly sorry that you stepped on their foot or you bumped into them or anything else that you might do by accident as you're moving about the world. And then right livelihood. This is not causing harm through the decisions that you make in order to sustain your life. It's about how you choose to sustain your life and ensuring that you're not causing harm to others in your choice to have a certain livelihood. And the Buddha gives you some guidance, and I just gave that to you here in the class, to get you to kind of the first fold of purification of your livelihood. And then when you like to go further, then you can look at volume 12, chapter 14, if you're looking to change jobs or move jobs or actually get a new job. So let me see what questions you guys have on what I just shared. For those of you guys in Zoom, you're welcome to put your question into the comment section or raise your hand electronically. And Facebook and YouTube, if you put your questions in the comment section, I'll be able to see those there and be able to answer any and all questions that you have. Okay, we have a question here from Rhonda on YouTube. Can we address meat as part of profession or one's diet? 
Personally, I understand that eating meat reflects back to harm of animals. My understanding is that the Buddha ate whatever was given. Sure, we can talk about this now. So in the right livelihood, you can see where the Buddha taught not to have a livelihood where it's based on meat. Because if we base our livelihood like a butcher or we're selling meat, this is causing harm to animals. And then when an individual purchases that meat and eats it, there are certain drugs and hormones and toxins in the meat itself. So even though someone else might have killed the meat, by you ingesting it, it's causing harm and sickness in your own body. And whether you choose to do this or not is your choice. Everybody has their own practice. This isn't about a bunch of rules and commandments that everybody has to follow or required to follow or one person's judging or what have you. I used to eat meat at one time. My wife still eats a little bit of meat as well. So each of us have to come to our own decision based on our wisdom and based on what we're seeing. What I observed is that I would have stomach problems, that I would have certain sicknesses and illnesses, and it even affected the quality of my mind because of those drugs and hormones and toxins in the meat. There's research that has been done that they've taken wild fish out of clean rivers and the USA, for example, and they've tested the flesh. And there's over 90 different substances in the flesh. They found cocaine, they found antidepressants, they found other substances. And when you're eating the meat, all that's going into the body, it's affecting the health of the physical structures of the body, and it's also affecting the mind as well. So just like you learn, reflect, and practice, and you can see the truth, if you do decide to move off of meat, you'll be able to see that it actually helps you to gain some clarity in your mind because you're not ingesting those drugs, hormones, and toxins. During the lifetime of the Buddha, it's rumored that he ate meat, but if you look at his teachings very closely, you can see that it's not possible for him to have eaten meat because the first precept talks about living compassionately for the welfare of all living beings. And how could you live compassionately if one is choosing to eat meat unless you know there's a real medical need for ingesting that substance? Because nowadays people's bodies are oftentimes dependent on meat. And if we're going to move away from it, we need to move away from it slowly. But there's some people who may not be able to move away from it based on certain dependency that the body has. But over multiple generations, we can actually observe that we're able to get closer and closer to a plant-based food supply if that's what we choose to do because it's going to help us with our physical health and it's going to help our environment as well. So there's various people that say that the Buddha ate meat, but if you see his first precept, if you see this teaching that he just shares on right livelihood, and remember, he planned to share his teachings worldwide. He knew it wouldn't happen during his lifetime, but over the course of many generations and many years, his teachings were going to meet with being shared throughout the whole world. So if everybody was practicing right livelihood, there wouldn't be any meat to eat in the world. And by you practicing in this way, you'll be able to see the truth for yourself if you decide to move off of meat. But that may not be something you're interested in doing right now or maybe ever. So you'll need to decide for yourself as part of your own independent journey. You might decide to do some research and see that at one time humans were plant-based eaters, but we started eating meat out of necessity, that we started running out of fruits and vegetables in the forest. So we started to scavenge and we started chasing away lions and tigers and bears and things like this and take over their kills. And we started eating their meat. And then we became more and more populous and that didn't work anymore. We started 
running out of supplies. So we started learning how to do organized hunting. And now we're at a point where we do farming and this is how we get meat. So I've chosen to move to a plant-based food supply. My son does that. My wife is eating very little meat and we see a huge improvement in the way that we have certain energy in terms of our body, certain clarity in the mind. feels nice to know that I'm basing my life off of not causing harm to other animals, but that was a choice that I made and each person needs to make those choices on their own. And as you develop more and more loving kindness or compassion, that decision might be to move to a plant-based food supply. But again, there's going to be some rare individuals who maybe they have a certain medical condition where they need certain substances from meat and they need to eat that. But just be sure that you're looking at that closely because oftentimes the mind will justify its decisions and choose to hold on to something like that when in fact it's actually really harming the body and your mind and you might decide that if you look at it objectively that you can let go of something like meat. But this is something that people usually evolve to over time because there's various things that you'll find in your life that like speaking harshly, that right now you might be speaking harshly and that's something that we need to clean up in our practice. And you know, if we're eating meat right now, which a lot of people are in the world, that's something that each person has to decide for themselves you know, when or if they're going to choose to move away from something like meat. Here's another question. If one is retired, should a person practice right activities? Yes. So if somebody is retired and say they're doing charity work or volunteer work, or maybe they're a stay at home grandma or grandpa, this is all harmless. But if that individual who's retired was involved in some activities that was causing harm and maybe even it's a volunteer activity, this is going to cause harm in their life. So it would be very wise to ensure that any activities you're doing as part of your livelihood or being retired, that you're not causing harm to others. What about being a line worker at a sausage factory? Yes, this is one of those livelihoods of business and meat. So in these situations, when we're coming in close contact with animal products and animal byproducts, the reason that the Buddha taught it as a livelihood that is causing harm to others and that could cause harm to you is this is how illnesses sometimes jump from the animal world into the human world. In effect, this is what we think happened with COVID. You know, some people aren't really sure, but it looks like the evidence is that human beings were perhaps in this wet market where animals were being sold as meat and the viruses jumped over from the animal world into the human world and we were all affected by that. That's our gamma. That's the results of our decisions. Same thing with something like the swine flu or bird flu, HIV, and some of these other illnesses have all come from the animal realm. That because of our close contact with animals, between humans and animals, we're experiencing these viruses coming out of the animal realm and it's affecting us in the human realm. So if you would like to purify your livelihood some more, if you're concerned about any kind of harm that you're causing through working in a sausage factory as a line worker, you can improve that by choosing to perhaps move on. But there's some places where this might be the only jobs that are available in a small town, and it might be very challenging to get the same amount of income by switching to another job. And this is something that each individual has to choose to look at. And if they're going to choose to transition to another livelihood, you might look at doing that slowly because somebody needs to build up certain skills in order to move over to a new livelihood. But when or if somebody chooses to do this or not, again, it's up to each individual to choose 
These aren't rules. They're not commandments. It's not something that anybody's going to knock on your door and require you to do or anything like that. But what the Buddha is sharing with you is the wisdom of this natural law of gamma. And then you can look at the cause and effect of it yourself and then make choices that are wise and helpful for you so that you can maintain a wholesome life and not experience harm coming back to you. Looks like we have a question here in Facebook. Is eating seafood causing less harm than eating meat? Thank you. I don't look at it in quite that same way, Denise. I look at if I eat any animal at all, it's going to cause harm because that being is a living being and now it has to be killed in order for me to ingest it. So in my opinion, it would be very wise to eliminate all eating of meat. In the sea, you're going to be picking up certain toxins and drugs and different hormones there by eating seafood. And the same thing's happening with the animals that were being harvested through farming and things like that. There's harm being done to not only our physical body, but our planet as well through doing this type of things. And we've done this for so long in human history that we've really normalized it. But, you know, think about it in this way. If somebody's really struggling with this, what you decide is up to you. But sometimes I put myself in the shoes of the animal and I think, okay, if there was some being on the earth and some being on the planet that was more superior than human beings and they were harvesting us and they were keeping us in cages and they were killing us in order to eat us, you know, we would probably revolt. You know, we would be despised by that and we would try to organize a way to revolt against this being that is more powerful than us. Well, animals can't really do that anymore because we've become the dominant creature on the planet, but we are doing things to these beings that are keeping them trapped in this world, in this life of servitude, and we're being harmed due to that. And it's all about your decisions. It's not about what other people are choosing to do. So here in Thailand, they're very meat-centric because this is an area of the teachings that not everybody understands or everyone has been exposed to. But they also experience a lot of stomach cancer here in Thailand because they eat so much meat. I mean, this is the result of their decisions. Because of eating so much meat, they're experiencing a lot of stomach cancer. But there's more and more people that are moving to either vegetarian or vegan plant-based food supplies. And if you choose to do that at some point, you'll see the results of over the two or three months period of how the body and the mind becomes more healthy. But if someone's interested in doing this, you should do that gradually to allow the body and the mind to adjust. And you might need to look at some vitamins, something like B12 oftentimes needs to be supplemented as part of moving away from animal meat in order to move to a plant-based food supply. So these are all considerations that you can look closely at. And I wrote about this in chapter seven, if anybody's interested in seeing more details on this. Under chapter seven, under the first precept, you'll see a section regarding vegan, and you'll see how I talk about it, that it's you know up to each individual, but I provide you details about and information that you might consider in terms of your decision of whether or not you would like to move to a plant-based food supply. And that doesn't mean you have to do it right now, right? If someone chooses to do that. These things on the path to enlightenment, people approach them at different times. And it's not like you have to rush out and you have to do all these things right away, but gradually, slowly, but surely, if you choose to look at these things and you choose to see how your decisions are impacting your own life and the life of the beings around you, you might come to different conclusions, even though in the past you might have made certain decisions 
now you might decide to start looking at things differently as you train the mind and cultivate loving kindness and compassion and start practicing in a different way. But again, each person has to make those decisions on their own. And those decisions are made over time as we develop more wisdom and we train our mind more and more. Okay, it looks like we have another question here coming in from Rhonda, or it might just be a statement. Personally, the more I delve into the Buddhist practices, the more compassionate I automatically become. I've got an icon there in front of one of the words. I think it says, the changes are automatic. I hear what you're saying there, Rhonda, and and that's wonderful to share and, and to know. In my mind, I don't think of it as much as it being automatic because everything that you do in life, you're cultivating certain wisdom. You're taking active role in making decisions. You're applying effort and energy to learn the teachings, and then you're applying an active role and effort to then make a different decision. So while it may be coming easier for you to function more compassionately, which is outstanding, I wouldn't ever classify it as being automatic because there is active work that you're doing with your meditation and with coming to classes and reading. It's probably becoming more easy for you is what I think you might be describing. But those are your words. Of course, you can describe it however you think is best. But just from my observation, I agree with you that as you're getting into these teachings, you can see more and more clearly about how we've made unwise decisions in the past. And now we can clean that up and experience different results. And that's one of the beauties of the teachings of the Buddha is that you can see the truth as you're learning and practicing. You can see improvements through your life and through the condition of your mind and your relationships and how you relate to the world. So you're just getting started, Rhonda, and this is great that you're already seeing some improvement and progress there. There's a whole lot more to be able to learn and practice as we go forward here. I'm not seeing any other questions, but let me just check one more time. Oh, Rhonda says exactly. Yeah, she must agree with what's being shared there. I'm not seeing any other questions here, but I was interested to check one more time just to be sure. And I'll check Zoom one more time as well. All right, I'm not seeing any other questions. So what I'm gonna do though, is just kind of give you a little preview for next class, which is the mental discipline section of the Eightfold Path. That's where we're gonna be talking about right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Here, this is where you're gonna learn things about how to actually train the mind on a daily ongoing basis, which is gonna help you to eliminate those discontent feelings that we talked about as part of right view. So next week, we're going to be going into this section of the Eightfold Path, doing the same thing that we did the last two classes, which is use the words of the Buddha and then learning, reflecting, and practicing. Because when you use the words of the Buddha, you know what he did teach and what he didn't teach. That's so important. There's over 500 million people in the world who identify as being Buddhist, but very few of them are actually learning with the original words of the Buddha. So by you learning like this through the books, through the classes, through the videos and all the other resources that I share based on the original words of the Buddha, you can see what he did teach and what he didn't teach. And then you're not believing it. You're learning, you're reflecting, independently verifying, you're practicing and seeing the results for yourself as the mind becomes more loving and kind and compassionate and your relationships really improve. So it's wonderful that you guys are attending these classes and asking questions, getting help and being really interested and determined to dive in to the teachings and understand what they are so you can make these gradual improvements to your life. And always keep that in mind that it's gradual training, 
gradual practice and gradual progress. It's not instantaneous. So these things that I share today, you're not going to be able to instantly go out and make drastic radical changes in the snap of a finger. But instead, as you gradually learn, you'll be able to gradually practice and gradually experience progress. And there you'll see the improvement to the condition of the mind in your life. On Wednesday, we're going to be in the third part of our four-part series on breathing mindfulness meditation. Remember, you need to build up that practice and do that work. Coming to class is outstanding. It's wonderful. But be sure that you're also doing work outside of class, whether it's reading, whether it's meditating, whether it's implementing these teachings in your daily life. I'm going to slowly walk you through the teachings over the seven-month period of the group learning program. And if you're doing your part, as I'm doing my part, which is sharing the teachings, and you're doing the learning and implementing them in your life, you'll see the improvement as you go forward in life. So thank you all for coming to class, and I appreciate all your questions and dedication because as you're making these improvements in your learning, this is the very best thing you could do for yourself, to those close to you, and all of humanity. Because as you're practicing these teachings, it's improving the quality of your mind, it's helping the people close to you because you're causing less and less harm to the others around you, and all of humanity becomes a more kind, more loving, and peaceful society for everybody. So thank you for your dedication. I'll be seeing you in the future class. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.